Are you feeling better, Cass? Yeah. Yeah, much better. Have you got a glass of wine on the go? Well, it's 10.30 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Celluloid Junkies. Sometimes life takes over, but we're happy to say that we have finally returned. Thank you for finding us again. My name is Damien Heath, and I'll be your host this episode. And as always, I'm here with my redoubtable co-host, Luke Kane. Hello, Luke. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very well. I'm very excited to be back. And this month, we are joined as well, all the way from London, by our special guest host, the punctilious Cassandra Kane. Hello, Cass. Hello, punctilious. I'm just going to get my dictionary out. It means you show great attention to detail. Ah, I was just because I was so late for this podcast, I thought maybe it was something to do with being punctual and that I had totally (laughs) um, uh, discredited that particular (laughs) description of me right there. Cass, our listeners have been waiting five or six months now for a new episode, so another five or six minutes didn't matter. Phew. (laughs) Thanks for having me back. It's a scary world out there, so let's lock ourselves away for the next hour in a tiny little confined space as we discuss David Finch's forgotten popcorn movie, 2002's Panic Room. They're locking us in. That was really good. I thought you were playing the trailer. (laughs) 4,200 square feet, four floors. Hardwood floors throughout, as many as six working fireplaces. Oh my God, it's huge. Yes, I don't know if you have live-in help. No, 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 it's just the two of us. That's strange. What? Is this room smaller than it should be? You're the first person to notice. No one from our office had the slightest idea. It's called a panic room. What? A safe room. Castle keep in medieval times. Fort concrete walls, buried phone line not connected to the house's main line. You have your own ventilation system and a bank of surveillance monitors that covers nearly every corner of the house. What's to keep someone from prying open the door? Steel. Very thick steel. My room. Definitely my room. That's the best thing I would love you. Tell me about it. Any film made by David Fincher is as much starring Fincher as it is his actors, and as much about Fincher's technical feats as it is about plot. He is the Hitchcock of his time, seemingly an effortless perfectionist with a mind moulded purely for filmmaking. From the young age of eight, Fincher started making short films on an 8mm camera, eventually parlaying this into roles with Industrial Light and Magic on Return of the Jedi and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, before co-founding his own production company, Propaganda Films, which would go on to become one of the primary creators of music videos in the United States in the late 80s and early 90s. Fincher himself made many of these short-form masterpieces, including music videos for Sting's Englishman in New York, Roy Orbison's She's a Mystery to Me, Madonna's Express Yourself and Vogue, Aerosmith's Janie's Got a Gun, George Michael's Freedom, and Michael Jackson's Who Is It? The company also produced David Lynch's Wild at Heart and his Twin Peaks television series in the early 90s. Fincher made many connections, and his music video and commercial work one of which was an anti-smoking campaign depicting a fetus smoking a cigarette, 
led him to get the directing role on Fox's big-budget sequel Alien 3. But that's a story for another episode. Fincher would gain huge recognition from two films he made after Alien 3, the psychological serial killer film Seven in 1995 and the zeitgeist dramatic black comedy Fight Club in 1999. Both of these films starred Brad Pitt, arguably one of the three or four biggest movie stars at the time. And while one was financially an absolute hit, that would be Seven, the other took some time to become what the New York Times eventually called the defining cult movie of our time. Regardless of their financial success or failure, however, it was clear that David Fincher was an up-and-coming director with skill to match his ambition, and he became a very hot property. Fincher's next project actually had ties to Seven in a Six Degrees of Separation way. That film's writer, Andrew Kevin Walker, had finished the script in 1991 in New York City and moved to Los Angeles to attempt to sell it. Walker eventually made contact with David Kep who had just had screenplays for Toy Soldiers and Death Becomes Her made, and was working on adapting a small story called Jurassic Park, and who showed the screenplay to New Line executives. Kep would go on to become one of the biggest names in screenwriting throughout the rest of the decade, writing Mission Impossible, a sequel to Jurassic Park, and adapting Marvel's Spider-Man property. He even tried his hand at directing with the small-budget Kevin Bacon supernatural thriller Stir of Echoes, which was met with limited success in a year that also saw the release of The Blair Witch Project and The Sixth Sense. Inspired by news coverage about the prevalence of so-called safe rooms among the wealthy in New York City, Kep applied his taut screenwriting techniques to creating a thriller based around this hot design trend, selling the finished script to Sony for $4 million. At first, Ridley Scott was attached to direct after Forrest Whitaker, who had directed the romances Waiting to Exhale and Hope Floats in the mid to late 90s, passed. Eventually, Fincher found the project, particularly admiring the mostly one-set location after Fight Club's 100 locations. He foresaw making a film that took the audience along with the character's journey in real time, watching those characters make plans and decisions, understanding their needs and motivations. This would be a stark difference from the mindfuckery of Seven, the mindfuckery of the game, and the, well, absolute mindfuckery of Fight Club. So surely a single location shot chronologically would be easy for a director who just made Fight Club, right? Well, not exactly. The original mother-daughter combination was cast with Nicole Kidman and Hayden Panettiere, who was at this point best known for a role on the long-running CBS series Guiding Light, as well as a supporting role in Disney's Remember the Titans. But Panettiere was dropped during rehearsals and replaced with Kristen Stewart, a complete unknown. The trio of thieves was cast with Forrest Whitaker as its lead with a conscience and Dwight Yoakam as the wiry, white trash, mean ex-con, and Jared Leto eventually joined them as the wannabe tough guy in the middle. Whitaker's character was originally written by Kep as the designer of the titular panic room, but Fincher and Kep reworked him into the panic room's installer, thereby making him a more relatable blue-collar worker. Jodie Foster's involvement with the project came almost a month into the film's shooting, when Nicole Kidman went down with an injury. After 18 or 19 days of principal photography, Kidman was running on the staircase and cried out in pain. It turned out that she had a hairline fracture of the bone beneath her knee joint and wouldn't be able to withstand the physicality of the project. Foster, meanwhile, had been put out to pasture on another project, also due to injury. Her long-in-development circus drama Flora Plum was delayed indefinitely when Russell Crowe severely injured his shoulder during training for the film. This left Foster open to answer Fincher's call to replace Kidman in Panic Room, a role for which she had nine days to prepare. But the recasting also meant that some lines had to be rewritten and some already shot scenes had to be changed. The majority of Panic Room had been laid out already in a new technology called Previs by the company PLF or Pixel Liberation Front. Done during pre-production, this computer-based technology used accurate measurements to produce a three-dimensional model of the film's set around which cameras could be placed and their movements could be determined. The technology had been previously used to mock up large action sequences in films like Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, Godzilla, and even Fincher's own Fight Club. But it hadn't yet been used as a replacement for storyboarding, the long-used process of drawing each frame of a movie in order to visualise it. PLF had mapped out about two-thirds of the entire running time of Panic Room in previs. This helped both cast and crew know exactly where to stand, look, react, place lighting and move the camera. 
The innovation in the use of previs during Panic Room and other contemporary films such as Minority Report and Peter Pan led to its adoption by all major studios, where it is now indispensable. The extensive use of previs in Panic Room did cause its own problems, however. Darius Congi, the cinematographer behind Finch's dimly lit masterpiece Seven, was originally hired to shoot Panic Room. His style suited what Fincher wanted to achieve, with a gloomy, smoky atmosphere desired for the film. But previs reduced Congi's role too, as Fincher later said, that of a light meter jockey. Congi left production about six weeks in and was replaced with Conrad W. Hall, the son of legendary DOP and three-time Oscar winner Conrad L. Hall. As much as can be managed by painstakingly replicating each and every shot in 3D during pre-production, even previs can't predict everything, and it certainly didn't predict Jodie Foster's pregnancy. Foster herself learned five weeks into filming that she was pregnant, but neither she nor Fincher nor the production companies wanted to delay filming. Instead, Foster's wardrobe was adapted for the situation, with the actress wearing baggy clothing including a large, heavy sweater to cover up the bump, and stuntwoman Jill Stokesbury, who Fincher describes as really amazing, taking over all of the stunt work, including much of which otherwise would have been done by Foster. To compound the difficulty in filming with a pregnant Foster, it had been decided early on that, due to the gradual decay of the set over the course of the film, the project would be shot chronologically. While it would have been easier to shoot wide and medium shots early, before Foster was too far along in her pregnancy, and then shoot close-ups later, this chronological method made it almost impossible to do such a thing. As Fincher stated later, the project was cursed, you feel a little persecuted by the forces. But the forces held off long enough to allow for the films against the odds completion. What had started as a supposedly simple single set location film shot almost entirely on a soundstage in Los Angeles had instead become a behemoth, with more than 2,000 camera setups, a single shot that took nine days to film and months to post-produce, two A-list lead actresses, multiple injuries, a pregnancy that shut down production, poor test screenings, multiple reshoots, and a final production budget of $48 million, well over expectations. Panic Room was eventually released into theatres on March 29th of 2002, but we'll talk about that later. In the meantime, Luke, Cass, where does this film rank on your list of favourite Fincher features? Oh, well that's a tough question to start with. I don't know that it rates as highly as it would have when I first saw it when I was 18. I think I value films like Social Network and Zodiac over a film like this now. But when I first saw Panic Room at 18, I thought it was just the best thing since sliced bread. I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was my generation's Jaws. I thought it was going to change cinema. <laughs> so, uh, and and I, I was just so looking forward to it as well. I'd loved Wait Until Dark. I loved, so I was sort of seeking out home invasion movies. And Cass, you and I loved Jodie Foster. And we'd seen Seven and it had freaked us out. So it was like, okay, now there's this home invasion movie with Jodie Foster being directed by David Fincher. It felt like some crazy product of wish fulfillment. Yep, I agree. I sort of feel like this probably does rank highly in my list of David Fincher films, not because it's a brilliant film, but just because of how much I enjoy watching it. And, you know, so many of Fincher's films that I think about, like Zodiac, like Seven, are far more grim. So this is kind of like a happy Fincher, which is kind of a rare a rare thing to witness. So for that reason, it sort of ranks highly for me. Calling this film a happy Fincher film shows how dark Fincher is. Mm-hmm. I think it's happy because it's fun. And mm. I, I mean, I typically think of Fincher in the same way that I think of Hitchcock as being a very fun filmmaker. So no matter what genre he tackles, no matter what the subject matter is, he's going to make a film that's fun to watch. I've enjoyed all of his movies. I've seen them all except for his new one, Mank. My favourite is Zodiac by quite a large margin. It's a serial killer film, so that's right within the genre that I love. But it's got a lot of ambiguity and a lot of suspense and a lot of style. And I think it's really brilliantly made. And I remember going to see Zodiac and I was gripping the armrest on my chair so tightly during that scene where he's in the uh, organist basement. Mm. But I would say Zodiac 7, Fight Club... For me, Benjamin Button, Social Network, those are probably his five films that are what I would consider the best. And I'd put Panic Room somewhere around the middle of the pack with Gone Girl. The film probably did a lot for him because it was a big hit. The brashness of Fight Club and Seven and Panic Room, this almost kind of closes a bit of a chapter in Finch's career. And yet it was enormously successful and it probably gave him a lot of freedom to then move into that area where he made these great films. 
I agree, especially after... I mean, Fight Club was not a financially huge movie for him. In fact, I think it was pretty disappointing for Fox. Yeah, and I read that um, Anna and the King cast was a disappointment for Jodie Foster. And so when Panic Room came out, they were like, oh, Jodie Foster's back. She's back, yeah. And I suspect, too, David Fincher went into this with an expectation that it would be a far easier film than what his previous experiences had been, you know, that it would be quite under his control and very planned. I think he even said something, he'd rather it be boring than exciting and stressful, you know, because it was so planned up front. And I wonder if his disappointment stems from the fact that he had such high expectations of this being a simpler film, of being, you know, easily a box office success because it's so commercial that perhaps those things didn't quite pan out because it ended up being so expensive. Um, Still successful, but then it just wasn't that film that he, or that part of his career, that break that maybe he was hoping for. So why do you think Panic Room was successful? Uh, I think it's pretty saleable genre. Um, and it's got a star who is is pretty saleable in that genre. That was her return to that genre after quite a while, I think. Fight Club had had the time at that point and had had the DVD release to start building an audience and people were intrigued about what David Fincher was going to do next time. He was becoming a name, especially among film fans. I mean, it's interesting to think that this film came out six months after 9-11, mm. which is, I think, you know, we were all in a in a kind of state of collective uncertainty. There were, you know, lots of discussions about fear of outsiders, of invasion, of, in- of attack on home soil. And even though it was never the intention, because this film went into production pre-9-11, I think it probably gave audiences a, a way of venting some of those anxieties in a way that was not direct enough to be too confronting, but also kind of thrilling and with a good ending, a happy ending tacked onto it as well, which of course, you know, we don't get in real life and we certainly didn't get really after 9-11. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't have anything to add to that, as you can tell. Old Sydney didn't miss a trick, did he? Open it, please. And the kid's like, he's apparently got no wonder he wanted a place to hide. Please open the door. That is highly inappropriate. Open the door, please. One of the interesting things about Panic Room is uh, the use of location. I believe you can break down the location in Panic Room into two things. So there's the space inside the film's Panic Room, and then there's the rest of the house. And a lot of the dramatic interplay between the characters in the film comes from who controls at any given point of time these spaces and a lot from what each of these spaces has to offer those characters. Obviously, the facts are that there is a panic room and inside that panic room rests what the uh, thieves are after, which is a certain amount of money in bearer bonds. And how much that is is not revealed until they get in there and they get that money. $22 million. But naturally, that means that whoever is inside the panic room has the most complete control of this treasure and whoever is not inside is left wanting in. And how these characters then utilise these occupied spaces for their desired means is where the tension in the film comes from. So Meg and Sarah, initially they are the first occupants of the panic room. They have their stakes heightened by needing to obtain an item from outside that space, which is Sarah's glucogen syringes. Not to mention that it's already been established in one of the early scenes in the movie that Meg suffers from some form of claustrophobia. And over the course of the film, both groups kind of turn their spaces into weapons to use against the other. I would say the most obvious example of that is when Burnham, who's played by Forrest Whitaker, he initially attempts to inject gas into the panic room to drive out Meg and Sarah. But then in one of the really interesting twists of the movie, Meg then reverses this by lighting that gas on fire where it travels back through the ventilation system and explodes the tank on the outside. You know, whereas Burnham was initially weaponizing what he had at his disposal, Meg then weaponized it and turned it on them. It felt to me a bit like a siege drama in a lot of ways. Like you've kind of got these protagonists defending the castle from within this structure that's virtually impenetrable and they're using all the means at their disposal to fend off the invaders. And that's kind of at the heart of a lot of the action. Largely it serves them until it doesn't, which is when they ultimately have to free themselves from the castle to really escape, you know, to be free. 
each opponent, like you said, Damien, has access to certain pieces and all these things like the money, the gun, even the ex-husband, the insulin, the phone, the gas line, and then finally the daughter herself, they all become almost value items. The thing about the Panic Room script is that it is just a case study of economy. There is not a second wasted on anything. Even something as little as when they first go into the apartment, Sarah is on the elevator and, you know, the real estate is like, kid, no elevator. So then we get the night where, you know, the invaders come in and Jodie Foster and her end up in the elevator and then they decide about the panic room and Jodie Foster can't stop the elevator. But of course, Sarah can. No, you've got to press emergency stop. When you rewatch it, you start to realize that there is not, not anything that is superfluous in this film. As the value items shift hands, I think David Kep is careful to keep both sides evenly weighted, and he doesn't do it by resorting to contrivances. Everything that comes seems to be a credible consequence of what's been. We don't have to make excuses. We're free to just enjoy the ride. It's not what Roger Ebert called the idiot plot. You know, it doesn't rely on the protagonist making bad choices to keep them in jeopardy. I think there's an interesting piece for me around fight or flight in this, you know, because it's like once they're in the panic room, which is, you know, a fort, you know, they're, they're safe inside that panic room, but their opportunities to fight are very constrained. But you're right, they use that opportunity to observe and notice what the invaders are trying to do. Um, and, and in some ways, the invaders for a big part of the film have more resources to play with. You know, they've got more flexibility, more room to move, to try and come up with different ways to provoke Meg and and Sarah to come out of that, of the room that they need to get inside of. Once Meg actually does escape and then she can start to use more of her fight muscles, she does that very wisely. You know, she's learnt and she's applying those skills now to, to make the most effective use of her time now that she's free from the castle. Can't get in the panic room. That's the whole point. You have to get her to come out. And why would you do that? I don't know. But when she does, she can't get out of this house. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about surveillance because that's another key feature of this movie. So you've got various cameras. Uh, The security cameras are used in the plot of the movie they're used to uh, give us information they're used to give the characters information but also we're given as an audience we're given the the advantage of david finch's setup shots and the the biggest one of all is the one that introduces the intruders into the story and it's a shot that lasts for i timed it at two minutes and 47 seconds And obviously that's made up of a lot of different shots and fancy editing, but it's cut to be seamless. The thing that this shot does is it gives the audience the entire intricate layout of the house. So that is all set up in one shot, two minutes and 47 seconds, and we get the entire layout of the house, the spatial relationship of all of these characters. I do have a question for you, though. Why do you think David Fincher decides to turn his camera when Meg is lying in bed and Burnham can be seen in silhouette behind her. The idea of having somebody standing behind your bed who's broken into your home is such a terrifying, completely wrong thing to happen. And so for Jodie Foster to kind of, for the camera to go like that creates this woozy feeling like the the natural order, the natural system of things is broken and something is terribly wrong. Yeah, I was going to say fear. It's a stunning moment in the film. Obviously, it was used as the poster art of the movie. It's, uh, in a way, become a, almost an iconographic cinematic image of home invasion. There weren't, there weren't multiple posters for Panic Room. I don't know that I've ever seen a different poster for this film. It is just this one. It's great. It's perfect. Another shot that I think does the uh, space really well is when Meg and uh, Sarah are first trying to get into the Panic Room, and it's shot through the wall so on the left hand side you've got junior trying to get into the elevator on the right hand side you've got megan sarah trying to stop him from getting into the elevator and i think that's a really stunning shot there's a series of shots like that even even the shot when they do eventually get to the panic room and that shot with the panic room door halfway through and on the left hand side you can see meg just trying desperately to get this linen or whatever it is that's blocking the door out of the way and on the right hand side you can see junior trying desperately to get into the room yeah when i think about all the camera work 
in this film, it made me think that the director was giving a biology to the house. Mm. You know, lots of people have said, you know, it's another character in the film. I think that's absolutely true. But the way those visuals look, it feels like the property is living and breathing. You know, the the fact that it can move through, it shows us this X-ray vision through the elevator with Junior on one side, Meg and Sarah on the other. It's really breathing a life into it. And I started to think about that, particularly in the opening scenes when, you know, we were getting used to the way the camera moves through the house when we sort of, you know, the shot where it moves through the house and we see Meg in the bathtub you know, we're, we're becoming acclimatised to the way that, that the director is introducing us to the house, that it almost felt a bit like an old school ghost film, like Rosemary's Baby, like Amityville Horror. It's like, when's the house going to come alive? You know, when is it going to push out these people that it doesn't want there or make them feel at home? That for me, the way that the camera did move around really did give it a sense of body, of, of life and character. I agree with that because if you if I think about it, the first time I notice the camera is actually when Jodie Foster is in the panic room and it very deliberately sort of shifts to that shot that spans around her while the realtor and estate agent are talking and gossiping. But we're on her and we're watching her and that is really a reaction to the space. It's nobody's home, nobody is comfortable there and it has the most control. Even, even when they're safe. In the panic room, there are certain things that they are not safe from. One of them is Sarah's illness. Another one is Meg's claustrophobia. And the other one is how much power do these people on the outside have against them because they're unfamiliar with that space still. This whole thing makes me nervous. Why? Ever read any Poe? No, but I loved her last album. This omniscient eye of the camera is connected to Poe at least somehow, theoretically, because, you know, woven into the narrative is this idea of self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, that uh, people's beliefs influence how they perceive what happens to them. Uh, And there's an early reference to Edgar Allan Poe, it's a little bit naff, but his stories focused most famously on premature burial and entombment, but also um, on this idea that we're all kind of victims of fate. Uh, You know, we all like to have or believe we have a measure of control over our lives, but actually any sense of control really is illusory and really the safety offered by the panic room turns out to be an illusion because all it does is protect them from a problem that exists because the room exists uh when describing the camera and the way that he shot it fincher said it doesn't have any personality to it (laughs) it's very much like what's happening is doomed to happen so we watch these characters struggle under terrible physical constraints from a vantage point that is totally unconstrained. We are totally free. We can go anywhere. You know, it's as if we are fate and we're roving around and having a gay old time just watching everyone suffer. Um, I actually think, like, I agree with you, Cass. I think Finch's camera has tons of personality. It's athletic. It's invasive. Sometimes it's cheeky. But I think that even though the film touches on problems like crime, diabetes, divorce, all this stuff we've talked about, I think the real problem is the room because it, it safeguards Meg and Sarah whilst also imprisoning them. During her press tour, Jodie Foster, I remember watching her on The Project when this film came out or something like that, something similar to The Project. Maybe it was Rove, I don't know. It was Rove McManus. Oh, okay. And I remember that she said that uh, the message of the movie is don't get a panic room. Because <laughs> to install a panic room means that you're living with a sort of an elevated degree of paranoia and suspicion. And we all suffer from confirmation bias. So if we expect to be harmed and attacked, we will perceive that we are being harmed and attacked even if we're not. Build it and they will come. Yep, exactly. <laughs> we're never going to get out of here. Just on this topic of surveillance and the cameras, one of my favourite scenes is when the intruders are in the house uh, there's a scene where meg looks directly into the camera which is obviously what we know in film as breaking the fourth wall and that's when she realizes that they're in the house so she sees them on the security monitors and i feel like this stylistic choice almost contrasts what can be seen with the naked eye and what can be seen with technology and and where that's going to appear throughout the rest of the film in what it does 
For the character is it brings her knowledge, having now seen the intruders, into line with the audience's knowledge because we've been shown that extended sequence earlier. And I think that is one of the best uses of the technology that Fincher has at his disposal in this entire film. In that moment where Jodie Foster looks into the camera, we all have that flicker of feeling of, what would I do? Yep, it creates a lot of empathy in the audience for where where she is at. It's used really well. The bouncing ball, I think it is, is what she sees. What do we think of the special effects shots in the movie? I'm talking specifically about... Things like moving through the banisters of the staircase, moving through the handle of the kettle. Are they just about aesthetics? Is it just about the look and feel of the film? For me, you know, when I think about parts that you describe, they are what take the film from being a typical popcorn movie, a potentially more forgettable one, to being an elevated one. That, that's what I remember in my mind that makes Panic Room stand out as visually exciting and interesting and just a joy to watch. I think those shots are pretty thrilling. And I remember when they, when the film came out, we hadn't really seen computer generated effects used to create relationships between different spaces and areas in that sort of way. And the camera sort of roves and flies about. And so, you know, one, one of the most sensual things about film is when there's movement and, and motion of that camera. The film is very serious and very dour. I mean, I know it has jokes in it, but really the the nasty parts are pretty nasty and it's certainly grim looking. The camera feels almost <laughs> joyful. Like I, I've called it sadistic, but, it, but I mean, there is joy in sadism. That's, that's what sadism is really. It's taking joy in pain. It's not unlike being on a ride or choosing to go on a ride that's gonna completely freak you out. Yeah. But you love it. Absolutely. The only shot I don't like is the shot through the handle of the kettle. I think that's unnecessary and I think it's just a bit flamboyant. One thing that I think is funny is like when it goes through the, through the kettle, you hear vroom. It's like, is the camera like creating wind? <laughs> I, know that, I know that the idea is not to be aware of a camera when you're making a movie. And if you're not aware of the camera, then obviously the, the filmmaker's doing the right thing. But that makes me aware of the camera. My husband and I just split up. Yeah, it's my first night in a new house. I admit I was a little drunk. And the sentence, if you insist on knowing, was going to be, there are three things that I will do for you if you come over here and jump into bed with me right now. Panic Room is a film that we would most closely associate with Jodie Foster. She is kind of the driving force behind this movie. And, and you know, she's spent her career playing these strong, empowered women. I think you're right around being a strong woman, but I would probably go beyond empowered to being powerful. Empowered kind of implies someone's giving her permission, you know, someone's supporting her to, to take on that role, but she kind of just takes it, right? Like she, she just is that powerful um, woman in so, in so many of her films. So, um, yeah, so it, in terms of that type, it does feel like the majority of her, her films are feminist, um, you know, the women are complex, they're strong, they're, we've talked about being resourceful, independent, self-reliant. You know, I think often there's the um, interplay of vulnerability and strength in a lot of the types that she will play. Like she will often be a character who's ex experienced some kind of trauma, who survived something, and she ends up using that to um, her advantage. You know, it becomes a strength or, or a reason for her character's arc. And when I think about Meg, I think she clearly fits the type in the sense that, as we said, yeah, super independent, smart, um, resourceful, uh, determined, but there are these moments of vulnerability. And the one that I always think of in this film is the guttural scream, mm. you know, where she's holding 
Sarah and Stephen is being beat up outside and she just does that kind of very primal scream and it sort of feels like on a human level she there's a point for her character where she just has to summon this energy despite being you know small in stature or you know female or all the things you might associate with being weak um in in um uh you know uh, the, the narrative over in history in terms of women or female characters. Um, and she uses that and becomes a really strong defender. I think the other thing that you have to acknowledge about Jodie Foster is that her energy is androgynous. Coming at this question, I couldn't help but think about, okay, well, what would it have meant to have Nicole Kidman in this role? And how would the film have been different? And Nicole is very binary. <laughs> she's very delicate. She's very feminine. David Fincher said that, you know, when you shoot a movie with Nicole Kidman, it's about glamour and physicality. With Jodie Foster, it's more about what happens in her eyes and it's more political. I think what you said, what we've all kind of acknowledged is that Jodie Foster's best work has been within the thriller genre. Usually in these movies, she's playing the protagonist and she's subject to very intense physical and psychological violence, really. Um, In Taxi Driver, she's a child prostitute in a toxic relationship with her pimp. In The Accused, she's viciously gang-raped and blamed for it. Uh, In Silence, she faces off two killers and has cum thrown on her face. I mean, this is pretty intense. And she suffers similar kinds of abuses in films like Flight Plan and The Brave One and, of course, Panic Room. But like you said, Cass, despite this, her persona is not victim-centric. It's resilient-centric. Her vulnerability is armed by her strength which is possibly why when it comes to putting a woman through what we've put Jodie Foster through on screen, we're probably more comfortable doing it to a Jodie Foster type than we would be an Nicole Kidman type. Because when it starts and when it gets bad, we know that Jodie Foster is going to be able to get this shit sorted. And we don't have that same sense of security when we watch Julia Roberts or Nicole Kidman's, who, who, who are strong, but who are softer. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's kind of a comfortableness in watching Jodie Foster go through this stuff as opposed to other women. Do you think it was a conscious decision to create parallels between the look of the younger Jodie Foster, and I'm talking especially in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and Taxi Driver, um, with Kristen Stewart in Panic Room? Uh, Because obviously Foster in those movies was this headstrong, independent, young, tomboyish girl. And you could say say the same for um, Kristen Stewart in Panic Room. Did the daughter get changed at the same time as Nicole? No, it got changed earlier. So Kristen Stewart started shooting with Nicole? Yes. Yeah, well then I guess guess it wasn't too conscious. It's, it's, a, it's a word, it's a descriptor that comes up often when you're reading about Jodie Foster and especially her younger characters. And I, I feel like it's a really, really um, great decision on behalf of the movie, whatever they did, whenever they decided it, to make Stuart somewhat tomboyish because it means that Jodie Foster now, as her mother, is in essence playing the maternal role that her younger characters never had. And you can see in Panic Room that this bond between mother and daughter is really strong. I also want to bring up another point that Lynn Stahl brought up. The differences between men and women when it comes to domestic set films. Uh, She states that historically the home as portrayed in cinema, it's always been a measure of professional success for a man and a measure of domestic success for a woman. So you think back to all of those movies, like even something that bucks the trend, like Giant, that we've looked at on this podcast, is an example of that. So when a home invasion occurs, therefore, the man senses this violation of material wealth and property. Whereas to the woman, the invasion is more akin to a penetration, and the threat becomes almost sexual. The invasion of the home is metaphoric for the invasion or penetration of the body. And she says the invasion of a female space by males necessarily becomes a political allegory evoking reproductive rights and the American right wing's repeated incursions into women's autonomy via the body. And I think that that gives a sense of understanding to why Meg protects the panic room, essentially. She doesn't just allow them to get the bearer bonds. She doesn't just ask what would make you leave the house. She protects it. She never asks that question. She never seeks to understand why they're there. No, the bearer bonds aren't hers. She's not going to get them if, if she finds them. They're not going to magically be hers. 
Yeah, I think it is really interesting because you're right, she doesn't ever seek to negotiate. And you can imagine if it was two men, a father and son in that panic room, there might be room, you know, for this. Well, what is it, you know, that you want? And, and, and you know, there's still, uh, there's not a certainty that it seems to be with Meg and Sarah that they will be killed or, you know, severely harmed if they um, try to negotiate or come into contact with the three men that have entered the house. And Stephen wants to negotiate. Jodie Foster has to say emphatically twice to him, they're going to kill her. The final violent scene of Panic Room is so violent and upsetting. Uh, probably the worst thing is obviously when he punches Kristen Stewart in the face. Mm. And just to see a child be punched by a man that size is just, oh my gosh, very, very shocking. And then when Raul grabs hold of the sledgehammer because he's injured and he just stomps it on the ground over and over as he inches towards Meg, who's disoriented on the floor. Or, you know, it, the film the film has you in that moment more than any other moment. And because the film is so fun for such a, a large chunk of it, right, through whether it's through the camera work, whether it's through the three villains who all have their very, you know, obvious role that they play, you know, the psychotic, the, the dumb one and the smart one. It's so fun that I think that really does help that last 20-odd minutes of the film be quite shocking because of how brutal it becomes. Luke, tell us about Panic Room and its release and how it was received. Well, Panic Room premiered, fittingly enough, on a windy night in Los Angeles on March 18th, 2002, before going into wide release over the Easter weekend. Despite some quibbles Fincher had with Sony's marketing campaign, Panic Room opened at number one, grossing 30 million across 3,053 screens and knocking Blade 2 off the top spot. Bolstered by an international press tour and a minimalistic poster that emphasised the film's taut dark energy and chromatic aesthetic, Panic Room remained in the top 10 cinematic releases for six weeks, finishing on 196 million worldwide. It was Finch's second highest grossing film at the time and Jodie Foster's first number one movie since Richard Donner's Maverick eight years earlier. It finished as the 22nd highest grossing film of 2002. Reviews for the movie were positive, if a little apologetic, with critics citing David Finch's technical virtuosity and Jodie Foster's performance. Roger Ebert called Fincher a visual virtuoso and was particularly effusive in his praise for Foster. She has the gutsy, brainy resilience of a stubborn scrapper and when all other resources fail her, she can still think fast and obliquely like a chess master hiding one line of attack inside another. Peter Travers was in agreement. Jodie Foster swings a mean sledgehammer and it's a kick to have her back on screen as a female warrior who knows how to chase demons. Philip French of The Observer described it as an expert thriller that plays on contemporary urban fears of confronting malign forces over which we have no control. Todd McCarthy of Variety gushed in nauseating terms, calling it a thinking man's women in peril picture. Some critics felt cheated that Fincher followed genre-bending efforts like Seven and Fight Club with a conventional popcorn thriller. Many derisively referred to it as Home Alone for grown-ups. In his review for the New York Times, A.O. Scott compared it unfavourably with Fight Club, lamenting Kep's predictable screenplay and arguing that Finch's tight control of the proceedings negated the viewer's ability to identify with the characters. It is skillfully constructed, no doubt at considerable expense, but it's hard to shake the feeling that nobody's really home. In a largely positive review, Rick Groen wrote for The Globe and Mail, the result is an always watchable picture from a director capable of more. Tim Roby of the Daily Telegraph concisely summarised this sentiment. We expect more than just craftsmanship from Fincher, he wrote. We expect bite. In 2002, Sony Pictures put out a three-disc special edition DVD of the movie, not film. Supplemental features include separate commentaries with Fincher, Kep and the principal actors, as well as a comprehensive three-part documentary covering all phases of production. Plans for a Blu-ray transfer were cancelled in 2019. Todd McCarthy from Variety said that this is a thinking man's woman in peril film. <laughs> yeah, I think we all had a little look with each other then. When we were like, <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. I know it's I know it's 20 years ago now that he wrote this, but I mean, come on. 
So it's time for the quiz. Uh, Cass gonna beat me. So we've got Cass versus Luke in the showdown this episode, um, and we're gonna start with Cass. Oh. We've got an easy one for you, okay? Thank you. True or false? Panic Room is the shortest feature-length film directed by David Fincher. True. Very good, Cass. It is true. It is by two minutes, shorter than Alien 3, which was his previous Ah. shortest. And I think every film he's made since then has been quite long. So, Luke, I've got an easy one for you too, okay? Good. How many steps are on the flight of stairs up to the third floor of the house? Okay, I'm just (laughs) kidding. Which film, eventually directed by Steven Spielberg, was David Fincher signed to direct in 2000 before dropping out to make Panic Room? AI? No, catch me if you can. No idea. Okay, Cass. Jodie Foster stepped down from her role as head of the 2002 Cannes Film Festival Awards jury to make Panic Room. How did the festival's organisers exact their revenge? Gosh, how did they exact their revenge? They never let her sit back on the panel again. I think I know. Luke, yeah, you, you can go for it. Didn't they remove confessions of a dangerous altar boy from the lineup whatever that film yes was called. it's the dangerous lives of altar boys they refuse to admit it into competition oh that's rude and uh, apparently everybody in hollywood knows this story but jodie foster's been uh, very forgiving and so she says she doesn't believe it was a deliberate snub she's so democratic she's so <laughs> lovely uh luke what was the next film that nicole kidman shot after dropping out of panic room Ugh. 2002. The Hours? It was The Hours. Great. (laughs) Yes. Um, That film's production actually occurred at exactly the same time as Panic Room. So January to June, July of 2001. Nicole Kidman's scenes were shot after her recovery and after those of Julianne Moore. She was shot first and Meryl Streep was shot second. Oh, interesting. Do you think that she regrets dropping out of Panic Room to win that Academy Award? (laughs) I don't think so. Okay, Cass. David Fincher originally sought to cast Maynard James Keenan, lead singer of the band Tool, in the role of Raoul. When Keenan was unavailable, he cast Dwight Yoakam. Which film had Fincher seen Yoakam in and been particularly impressed with his performance? I don't know. I know, wasn't he? He was a country singer. I don't know. Was it a, a video clip, music video? I don't know. No, actually, he was in the Billy Bob Thornton directed 1996 film Sling Blade. Oh. Huh. These are very like random qu- questions. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't want you fuckers like getting a lot of uh, right answers. Fair enough. Luke, Nicole Kidman appears in Panic Room as the voice of Meg's ex-husband's new lover. In which 1990s television series did Jodie Foster do voice acting work? The X Files. I'm very good. <laughs> I recently watched that episode. Yeah, I thought you might have. In a 1997 episode, she provided the voice of a man's tattoo, which ultimately drives him to murder. Yeah. And I would have also accepted Frasier, where she did voice work in 1996. Huh. Cass. Yes. You can't, you can't win, yep. but let's ask you anyway. All right. To which Stanley Kubrick film did David Fincher compare the claustrophobic shooting experience of Panic Room? The Shining. Yes, very good. He said, don't shoot for 100 days in one place. That's what's to be learned from making Panic Room. They probably had that same kind of problem on The Shining since that's all in one house, but at least they get out, they get to run through a maze. (laughs) And Luke, your final question. As well as Kidman, which former Fincher collaborator has a cameo in Panic Room? Is it the um, state agent? Cass, do you want to try? Yeah, isn't it the writer of Seven? Very good. Yeah, Andrew something the writer. Yes. No, something Andrew. Andrew Kevin Walker, oh, the that. screenwriter of Seven. He plays the sleepy across the street neighbour of Meg and Sarah. Cass, you got three, correct? Didn't I only get two? Well, you just got that one. Oh. And Luke, you, you also got three. It's a tie and I have no more questions. Oh, excellent. Will we both win then? Yay. Yes. Congratulations. <laughs> Bottles of wine for both of you. Oh, Look forward to that. So that brings us to the end of our discussion on Panic Room. 
What do we have in store next? Oh, wait. No, we need to give a final rating. I was going to say. We're not even doing okay. our ratings. Okay. What What would you rate Panic Room, then? Uh, I would rate it four stars. I think it's really a very exciting, unambiguous genre film. It really effectively taps into a lot of modern anxieties, the fear of abandonment, technology, of confinement, touches on health anxiety, parental anxieties. As I say, I think I have taken it out for too many spins and I've blunted the tyres a bit, but I still love it. I love it for Jodie Foster, for Finch's work. Just a great, fun popcorn film. I gave the film four stars as well. Um, agree with, with everything that you've, you've just mentioned. I sort of think it's, you know, it's a film where you watch the trailer, you know it's going to be good, you know, you can feel it, you're going to, you know, it's just no doubt you're going to have fun. You go, you watch the film and, yep, you're like in it all the way. It's entertaining, fun ride. Um, you dock a star because I guess it's not complex, you know. It's it's not one you're going to remember for the ages. Um, but, you know, what a great, fun, memorable movie and an example of some really brilliant filmmaking. We, we're all in sync because I'm giving it four stars as well. As you mentioned there in the uh, release and reception, Luke, uh, Fincher calls it a movie as opposed to a film and he says I didn't look at Panic Room and think wow this is going to set the world on fire these are footnote movies guilty pleasure movies thrillers woman trapped in a house movies they're not particularly important and I guess that I would just say that I view it the same but it is a particularly good example of all of those movies now that brings us to the end of our discussion on Panic Room what have we got next time I am going to take us back to 1961, John Huston's The Misfits. Oh, my gosh. The Misfits. <laughs> ah, That's Marilyn really cool. Monroe. Yeah, have either of you? I haven't seen it. Yeah, you haven't watched it. Have you watched it, Damien? It's a movie if you ask me if I have seen it and you ask me to recall something, I wouldn't be able to. So I may as well be seeing it for the first time, even if I have seen it before. It's going to be exciting to tackle a film that we're watching for the first time. I don't know if I've, we've done that since French Connection. Well, thank you for joining us this month. Uh, we are so glad to be back and we hope that you've had a fun ride with us. Thank you, Luke, for joining us. And there was a virtuoso performance, Luke. <laughs> uh, thank you very much to Cass for joining us all the way from London as well. And uh, we look forward to seeing you. We are The Misfits, going to be talking about The Misfits next time. Bye. Roger Ebert called Fincher a visual virtuoso... Sorry. <laughs> Roger Ebert called Fincher a visual virtuoso. I can't say it. Virtuoso. Virtuoso. Roger Ebert called Fincher a visual virtuoso. I can't say it. <laughs> I'm just going to have to use one of those. <laughs> Roger Ebert called Fincher a visual virtuoso. Not right, was it? <laughs> just insert Damien saying that bit. Uh, Roger Ebert called Fincher. <laughs> Roger Ebert called Fincher a visual virtue. <laughs> I can't now, I just can't. <laughs> Roger Ebert called Fincher a visual virtuoso. I'm going to do it one more time. Roger Ebert called Fincher a visual virtuoso. I can't do it again. <laughs> <laughs>